The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Ken Fisher, who is a money manager based in California. Uh, his new book is called How to Smell a Rat, The Five Signs of Financial Fraud. Welcome to the show, Ken. Thanks for having me, Jordan. Uh, over the years, there have been many uh, rats, I guess you'd say, many schemesters and fraudsters and so on. Uh, why do you think we've had such a, a recent rash of them that's been so dramatic in, in the uh, victims they've had? Well, what happens is that in good times, these people engage in their activities and the good times, for reasons that I can explain, allow them to not get caught, and then the bad times impede the mechanism that they use to perpetrate uh, their fraud, and they do get caught. And so we notice them in the immediate aftermath of the bad times because that's when they all get caught. As long as times are good, the basic scheme that they engage in, which is pulling in new money to pay off people who previously invested and want to get their money out, that works. So in good times, people tend to be more optimistic. They can get lots of investors because people are optimistic. Not that many people want to get their money out. They get more money in than wants to go out, and then they can pocket the difference for themselves. In bad times, not so many people want to put money in. Lots of people want to get money out, and they can't keep playing the game. And suddenly, investors who want to get their money out can't, and that's when these things get uncovered. Did you uh, have suspicions about Madoff yourself before it, it broke? I'm going to tell you, I never spent a moment of my time thinking about Bernard Madoff before this broke. I just never paid any attention to the man because his part of the world and mine don't really overlap very much. Well, you're both in the money management. Well, he was not in the money management business, but people thought he was, as are you. And, he, you know, he was a quite well-known guy. Somebody who has $65 billion is not anonymous. Uh, but but I thought of him more in terms of his brokerage operations. Yes. And... The irony of this man, of course, is that he had, before he ever engaged in any of these activities, a very successful business. And uh, it's a tremendous shame and irony that a man who gets to be very successful finds himself willing in any regard to engage in these kind of rat activities. But as uh, he claims, I don't think he set out to be a rat. I think he got himself into a hard time, had himself positioned so he could dip into his client's money, did. And usually when these people do this, when they go the route that he did, as opposed to some other people who set out to be a rat intentionally, what they usually do is they borrow the money. They think they see a sure investment deal that will give them a big enough return to pay back their clients. They'll never do it again. But that sure return, of course, never works out. And then they try one more time, and they bet even bigger, and it goes against them. And then eventually they just get used to uh, made-off claims to being a perpetual rat. Why do you think uh, all of the people who are dealing with Madoff, uh, the feeder funds, the accountants, the uh, money managers, I mean, just an entire stream of lots and lots of people, there were really only one or two people who were saying 
calling out that they thought this was a fraud. Why could he build up something with, with amongst the smartest people literally in the world? He, he was having people all over the world investing him, not just the U.S. Well, I think uh, Madoff in that regard is just a different but bigger version of what Alan Stanford was, in that if Madoff hadn't happened right when he happened, Alan Stanford would have been the biggest Ponzi scheme ever. It just happens that Madoff gets uncovered just a few months before. I think it's a similar event, because if you actually look at the average account size that Alan Stanford had, they were pretty big accounts, and from similar functions, different but similar. He had uh, feeder funds. He had money from all kinds of places. He's doing a different type of an investment claim. But I think the fundamental feature is people don't ever think through, as I depict in the book, the five signs of financial fraud that are always common to all of these people. They just don't think about them. There's things that all these people always do. And when you put them, any one of them doesn't mean that somebody's a bad guy. Uh, all of them exist around us all the time. We just don't normally think about the fact that all of them together mean somebody's a bad guy. And uh, embezzlers, going back to the days of Charles Ponzi originally, they all always use all five of these signs. And therefore, our brain, and, and, and those signs are really ones that we're not set up to look for. Uh, we're never trained to look for. They're not natural to us. And so we don't look for them, and then we fall victim to to their scam. And, you know, th these scams in this same basic form have gone on for a really long time, and usually the people don't get caught until we hit bad times, and they can't and they can't meet redemptions. If these have been going on for such a long time, as you said, Charles Ponzi, I guess the 1920s, was really doing this, uh, and, and we know the five, and we're going to go through in detail with the five different uh, signs, uh, but if, if it's basically been the same five signs since the... 20s or 30s, uh, why have not uh, regulatory changes been made uh, to you know, outlaw these things from happening in the first place, if, if it's the same things over and over? Well, it's very difficult to regulate all five in one, and uh, each one of them, as you go through them, you see why you can't really regulate against it. Uh, let me just uh, give you uh, one perfect example, because no one of them in and of themselves is indicative of criminality. No one of them by itself, there's legitimate real reasons in life why people do any one of them. When people do all five of them, uh, it relates to uh, the, the criminal approach. Another way to say that is that in the rest of our laws, outside of financial fraud and things like murder and burglary and uh, rape and you name it, uh, in all of these other forms of crimes, we have laws against the crime, but we don't have laws against sort of the psychology of the criminal. Mm -hmm. You can't really create laws against the psychology and the style and the modality of the criminal, just laws against the crime itself. We have laws against the crimes of financial fraud. We just don't have the ability to uh, create laws against the signs of the style of the way these people operate. Now, one of the signs... Uh, is one, and, and there's a good reason for this, Jordan. One of the signs is combining custody with decision-making, mm -hmm. and we'll talk about that later, I'm yes. sure, but, but every embezzler, Ponzi scheme, con artist, ratso always combines custody with decision-making. The problem is lots of legitimate folks do too, including pretty much every hedge fund. 
including uh, all the major broker-dealers. And so the argument of illegalizing or making it a crime to combine custody and decision-making would mount with a wall of opposition because there's so many people to do that and do it perfectly legitimately. The dilemma, however, and you can see this right now in the SEC, where Mary Shapiro is wanting to mount an increased level of scrutiny on those registered entities, whether they're uh, in the broker-dealer side or on the investment advisor uh, money management side, that do combine custody and decision-making and a kind of a higher hurdle of inspection standard, they should have done that a long time ago. And I do think that you can criticize them for not having done that earlier. Mary Shapiro appears to be clear about doing that now. But it's important because that's where the rats are. Yeah. One of the things you say at the beginning of this book is uh, that a con artist wants both big and small investors. Uh, the, certainly the impression with Stanford and Madoff was that they you know, couldn't be bothered with small investors, that they were only going for the big ones. Is that a misperception that people have? That's a complete misperception. But what happens is that all of these people, almost all of them, always convey that image. That is... I only deal, I'm important, I only deal with the big folks, I don't deal with folks like you, but in this case, because you know Joe Blow, or because you've got this connection, we'll take your money. Don't bother me much now, because I'm so important, you can't bother me with questions, you can't really ask me about what I'm doing, but because you know Joe Blow and Joe Blow's with me, you can just trust that he knows what he's doing, and uh, I'll let you ride along. One One of the bad signs is this notion of um, they wouldn't normally take your money, but in your case, they'll make an exception. The fact is these guys want everybody's money because they want every bit of money in that they can get. And, you know, in the case of Bernard Madoff, and this was not understood when he was uh, first arrested, this has really only been understood fairly recently, but he'd take the money in, and immediately after he'd take the money in, he'd write it to his own. He, he, it went into um, a, a, a thing called BMI, Bernard Madoff Investments, and then he was the sole signatory on that account. He would then write out of that account to his own personal account at, at Chase Bank, uh, and all the money went out. He kept almost no money in BMI. The... Uh, fundamental feature of that is then he's holding on to the money. Nobody's looking for the money in his personal account. And whenever he actually had redemptions, he put the money from his personal account back into BMI and paid it out. This is uh, beyond scary. But the fact is, the investment entity that they create is, for the most part, just an excuse for taking money in uh, and then putting it out, holding it on the outside, and later putting it back in if you have to meet redemptions. Redemption meaning somebody says, I want my money back. But you think the, the people basic will business figure out, taking I mean, that was money a, to pay off all investors, doing, that's what a Ponzi scheme's always been. They, they still really can't figure out how all these statements to so many thousands of people that were so detailed were created and disseminated. I mean, how, how this all happens. Do you understand how that works, or is that a mystery to you as well? I think I understand it a little bit. Yeah, it's just it's just a, a simple process of using computers to create accounting. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a break. Uh, again, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Ken Fisher, who's got to come out with a new book called How to Smell a Rat, The Five Signs of Financial Fraud. And we'll be back after this.
up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network. Jordan Goodman has created the Money Answers Network to put at his listeners' fingertips the very best personal finance products and services that he has found in his 30 years of research. If you have a money question, Jordan Goodman has a money answer. To find out more, go to www.moneyanswers.com. The Money Answers Network features top products and services in virtually every area of personal finance, car buying, and leasing, college financing, credit debt, financial planning, investing, insurance, legal services, mortgages, retirement planning, wills, and more. Only businesses that have demonstrated excellence in both their products and services are invited to become members of the Money Answers Network. The public can sign up for membership in the Money Answers Network at no charge in order to be apprised of the latest useful resources. To learn more, visit www.moneyanswers.com. Get ahead with Money Answers. Are you ready to go green? You've asked and we've heard you. Voice America presents the Green Talk Network. Environmental topics are at the forefront of our society, and the Green Talk Network is here to keep you up to date on the latest trends and new innovations for the eco-conscious lifestyle. We'll help promote a variety of ideas on the environment, from global warming issues to how you can become more eco-friendly in your daily activities. Be a part of the solution, not the problem. Visit the Green Talk Network page on voiceamerica.com and tune in to help spread the green. Mark of the Fraud by Royd Head. Hear more at don'tbeanasterisk.com. Brought to you by Ad Council and the U.S. Olympic Committee. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Ken Fisher, uh, who's written a new book called How to Smell a Rat, The Five Signs of Financial Fraud. Welcome back to the show, Ken. Thanks for having me back. One of the things you say is that uh, bear markets don't cause scams, and yet it, it seems as though people thought all these things did blow up after the bear market happened, that you didn't hear about this too much during the good days. What, why is it that the bear markets don't cause scams? Uh, bear markets don't cause scams. They uncover the scams that were already previously perpetrated. That is, in the basic nature of the Ponzi scheme embezzlement, which is what Madoff did, Stanford did, uh, everyone else going back to Charles Ponzi, it's the basic form of external financial fraud. The core of that activity is bring in new investors, as many as you can, as fast as you can. Anyone that you claim a high rate of return, but anyone wants their money back, 
you pay for out of new money. So when you get in good times and lots of people are optimistic, they want to invest, you get lots of new money, you don't have very many people terminating, the new money can pay off the old money. When you hit bad times, by contrast, not many people want to put new money in. Lots of people want to take money out. You may not have enough new money to pay off the old money that's leaving. If you don't have enough new money to pay off the old money that's leaving, the Ponzi scheme gets uncovered. That's what happened to Madoff. That's what happened to Stanford. That's what happened to Charles Ponzi. That's what happened to everybody. In the bad times, you can't get enough new investors to pay off the old investors that want to leave. There was a specific time uh, in December with Madoff that I, I remember something like $7 billion, a huge amount of redemptions had come in because people were getting hit by other hedge funds and just needing the money. It wasn't they were suspecting Madoff. And that was the precipitating event uh, that made him call his sons in and say it's all been a fraud. Is that right? That's true, but note that it's the bad times that make all those people want to get their money back for whatever reason. They're yeah. no longer so optimistic. They now need to get money for this and for that and for the other because their other investments went bad. They don't particularly think Madoff's a problem. They just want their money back. But because he can't raise enough new money because people are afraid then, he can't pay off the old money, so he gets caught. Yeah. Okay, the first uh, of your five uh, uh, things to look out for is what you call good fences making good neighbors that – uh, advisor uh, having custody of the assets at the same time he has discretion, that's what causes problems here. So beyond Madoff, has this happened in, in many other cases where people turn over custody, uh, you know, and that's what leads to the problems here? This has happened forever. That is, once you give someone physical possession of your money, you're relying on solely their integrity that they won't take it out the back door and leave with it. Once you've physically given them the money and they're making the decisions on what to invest in, it's totally possible for them to make up phony statements, take the money out the back door. You don't know until afterwards. So on the one hand, people do this with perfectly legitimate entities like the major brokerage firms. You give your money to a Merrill Lynch broker. The Merrill Lynch broker is making decisions for you. The odds of that being an embezzlement are very, very low because there's been very little of that. But, for example, there's a guy named Frank Rutideria who was at Lehman years back and literally he got all of his clients to sign a, a little form that shipped their statements to one address that he controlled, and all these statements went off, all their normal Lehman statements went off there. He created fraudulent statements for his uh, activities. He took the money out from Lehman, paying the money from Lehman to an entity that he controlled and took the money out the back door. Every hedge fund operates this way, although almost every hedge fund, unlike Madoff, most hedge funds are completely legitimate. There's a lot of reasons why people combine custody and decision-making. But when you go to, let's say, Schwab, and you give them your money, your basic function initially is for them to do safekeeping of it and to act as a custodian. You then make the decisions when you're at Schwab or you hire an investment advisor to make the decisions. You don't get embezzled. You go to Merrill Lynch. You have them hold the money. You have an investment advisor make the decisions. The investment advisor can't embezzle the money and take it out of Merrill Lynch when Merrill Lynch is in the safekeeping mode. When you actually, and this is most particularly problematic, you go to the relatively small broker-dealer investment advisor who takes custody and is making decisions, and now 
effectively, you're just relying solely on your faith and their integrity that they don't take the money out the back door and run away with it. And whether it's Charles Ponzi, whether it's uh, so many of the people that I listed in this book, uh, people like Alberto Villar, who was one of the largest uh, donors ever to uh, opera, um, no matter who these people are, you give them the money, you give them custody and the ability to make decision, and they can embezzle from you. So one of the signs, the first sign is, because every embezzler does this, do they actually physically take possession of your money and make the decision? You want to separate those two. You want the decision maker of what should be bought and sold in your account to be separate from whoever it is that actually has the custodial safekeeping of those assets because the fence in between them creates the inability of the Ponzi scheme person to engage in the Ponzi scheme. When Madoff set out originally, he did not intend to be an embezzler. He set up that way because it's convenient for him to take the money and have custody of it. Once he got into a personal financial problem, and many people don't set out to be embezzlers, just like Madoff, they run into a personal problem. But because they can take the money out of the till from the clients, they take it out thinking they're going to pay it back. They almost always have some great investment idea that's going to make them a big return, and then they're going to pay the money back after that thing pays off, but it blows up, and then they do it again and again, and finally they get used to the notion that they're never going to get out of the hole. So as with Madoff, they become perpetual embezzlers. People like Alan Stanford, by contrast, I believe, set out to be a crook in the first place, and Alberto Villar that I mentioned a moment ago, uh, I'm quite convinced from other features he set out to be a crook in the first place. The way they set it up. So you're saying that the bottom line for people is they should always have the custody be in a, in a separate institution than the money manager who's making the decisions. Is that right? Yes, because that way the person making the decisions can't actually get their hands on the money, and the safekeeper is purely in the safekeeping business, and they can't actually control what things are invested in. The Ponzi scheme embezzler always invests in things that allow him to take the money out the back door. You have a, a list of the different kinds of victims uh, who fall for these kind of things. Let's just briefly go over those. Uh, you talk about uh, confident Clark. What, what uh, kind of victim would that be like? Well, you, you know, these people fall into um, basic categories, and one is the person that's exceptionally confident of themselves. This person's often a CEO, a very successful person. Uh, they enjoy things about investing themselves. They think they're you know as good as anybody else. They think they're as good as a top advisor. They think they're as good as Warren Buffett. Uh, they like getting the reports. They like getting uh, stock tips. They find the whole thing uh, within their realm. And these people often fall for it because they fall for the jargon. They fall for the supposed high returns. They fall for uh, the notion that they know better, therefore they don't engage in due diligence. They're not very careful, really. They're too confident. They're overconfident. Uh-huh. Next one you have is what you call hobby how. How do they do it? Well, these are people that uh, you could think of as the hobbyists. To them, all of this stuff is fun. They're almost like a rooting section. Uh, what they'd like to do, uh, I mean, they they enjoy the process of educating themselves about investments, but they're hobbyists. They're not really professional. They're not really serious. And because they like it, they become vulnerable to um, the talking points that the embezzler makes because they enjoy the game. They're sort of like the person who likes to hang around the racetrack. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the hobby that they're 
It's the game that they're talking about, really, yes. Uh, and, and um, you know, th- these people are actually very common to uh, another form um, that th- these are people that like having a professional partner and trusting in the notion that the professional partner is the expert in his area where they're the expert in theirs. This is what uh, you could in- envision as somebody that is engaging an expert, and they envision that Bernard Madoff's their expert or Alan Stanford's their expert. These people, in a different sense, are ready to kind of let the expert run because the expert knows, but they enjoy the interaction with the expert. So these people would, for example, enjoy the notion that Alan Stanford owned a sports team and they like the sport and they have this in common with Alan Stanford. These people enjoy that function. The scariest of the of the personality types are people that are um, what you could refer to as daunted. They want to delegate. They don't want to get into details. They don't actually much have time for this. They don't want to make time for this. They've got a different life, maybe being a grandparent or maybe being a professional. Uh, they really just want to make a decision and let it go. Those people are perfect for these people because those people... Uh, once they've made a decision that Bernard Madoff's good, and then they get these statements that say the returns are high, rarely look back and rarely actually uh, ask questions. The, uh, there's there's two more types, and I don't know if people really want to get into all that or not, but uh, th- these are people that are more concerned, but then once they've made the decision, they typically don't back out, and these people often have them because they don't really like the investments. They don't like talking about it. They don't like thinking about it. So once they've made the decision, they keep getting the statements. The returns are high, and they just let the money run for a long time. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you also have a section where you say that uh, pyramids can become Ponzi's. When does that happen? When does that transformation happen? Uh, the uh, notion of a Ponzi is really predicated on the notion of the the takeout of the money. And a lot of people don't set out to take out the money. A lot of people end up just falling into this habit, this process that I described earlier where they they mean to borrow the money and pay it back, but they never can pay it back because they lose it once they take it. Um, and then they keep paying out to pay themselves. Then they get habituated to the fact that they're a criminal, which is what happened to Madoff. I mean, Madoff turned into a hardened criminal. And that process uh, is one that once you go down that route, it, it, it's a one-way street. It just keeps going. Yeah, indeed. Okay, we're going to take a break here. Uh, my guest this hour is uh, Ken Fisher, uh, whose new book is called How to Smell a Rat, uh, The Five Signs of Financial Fraud. The publisher is uh, John Wiley. Um, And we'll be back after this. markets up or down or if you're looking to improve your portfolio our experts are ready to talk to you call now toll free 866-472-5790 that's 866-472-5790 voice america business network
Are you ready to grow your business? Listen for the Independent Business Owners Show with your coach, Rick Corrado. This entertaining talk radio program will bring you the tools to help increase your business. You'll learn sales success, time management, lead generation, business development, life balance, and much more. Rick Corrado is here to help you take your business to the next level. Listen for the Independent Business Owners Show, heard live every Monday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Network. Jordan Goodman has created the Money Answers Network to put at his listeners' fingertips the very best personal finance products and services that he has found in his 30 years of research. If you have a money question, Jordan Goodman has a money answer. To find out more, go to www.moneyanswers.com. The Money Answers Network features top products and services in virtually every area of personal finance, car buying and leasing, college financing, credit debt, financial planning, investing, insurance, legal services, mortgages, retirement planning, wills, and more. Only businesses that have demonstrated excellence in both their products and services are invited to become members of the Money Answers Network. The public can sign up for membership in the Money Answers Network at no charge in order to be apprised of the latest useful resources. To learn more, visit www.moneyanswers.com. Get ahead with Money Answers. Mike check, one, two. Big poser coming to you fake yeah. ever. Got no more games since nah. I got with the juice. Uh-uh. I'm cruising with my friends, they cut me loose. Now my coach is hating, parents keep berating. Good thing my team's still behind me saying. Hey, yo, what happened to my teammates, man? Yo, where y'all at, man? Come on, man. I thought we were family. Uh, don't be a poser. Hear more at don'tbeanasterisk.com. Brought to you by Ad Council and the U.S. Olympic Committee. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Ken Fisher, uh, who is the author of a new book called How to Smell a Rat. The Five Signs of Financial Fraud. Welcome back to the show, Ken. Thanks for having me. It's uh, great to be with you. We've gone through number one. Number two is about returns and how too good uh, usually is too good to be true. Uh, what is it that, that uh, these schemers can promise that people believe uh, that makes them want to go for those kind of returns? Well, in, in my book, How to Smell the Rat, the Five Signs of Financial Fraud, I go through at great length how every one of these guys knows uh, two basic features that investors fall for. One of them is they want high returns, and they don't necessarily want the highest returns ever, but they want high returns. And then they also want them to be non-volatile. So if you think about what they always promise you, they don't promise you the returns that are the highest that anybody's ever gotten, but they're kind of returns that would be up in the top 10 to 15% of what anybody had ever gotten. And then they're amazingly smooth and consistent because people don't like volatility. And the way people think when the market's up, it's good. When it's down, it's volatile. When it's up 10%, that's good. When it's down 10%, that's volatile. So these returns are real smooth and steady. When they're too good to be true, they're likely not true. And one of the things about all the legendary investors of all time, whether it's Warren Buffett, Peter Lynch, you name it, it doesn't matter. They've all had bad years. And so one of the things that I urge in in, in my book, How to Smell a Rat, is you really want to ask to see the bad years. If they don't have bad years, it's a scary sign. For an honest 
investment advisor, money manager, whatever, the bad years are almost a badge of honor as a form of a truth statement in that they'll be delighted to show you the bad years. They'll be delighted to explain to you why they screwed up, what they missed, what they didn't see. When somebody claims they have no bad years and they've been around for a long time, that's pretty hard to believe because everybody that's been around for a long time dealing in markets, I mean, Bernard Madoff claimed to be engaged in very complicated arbitrage transactions. Anybody that's done anything in that kind of a world for a long time has had bad years. Anybody that engages in capital markets over the long term has bad years. So you say, where's the bad years? They're an integrity proof statement. If they don't have them, it's a scary sign. They may not be a criminal, but they're very exceptional if they don't have them. And then you want to look for the other four signs, because if they got the other four signs too, then they probably are a criminal. Now, hedge funds, for example, say uh, they can go short just as well as they can go long, and if the market's going down, they can make just as much money when the market's going down as when it's going up. Uh, is that not to be believed as well? Well, there's nothing that says that's wrong. The fact is a hedge fund that can go long and short can make as much money in a down market as they could in an up market. But if that's the case, they wouldn't have smooth and steady returns. If that's the case, they would have high returns that were highly volatile also. My point is, it's not just that the returns are high, and it's not just what the advisor says he can do, although we can talk later about some of the things that con artists say they can do that you can tell are wrong. But selling short is a legitimate activity. Uh, there's a, all forms of legitimate activities, but if you engage in capital markets, that will include volatility, and the volatility will include bad years. And so you will have bad years. You'll see those bad years, and the bad years tell you the guy's honest. The fact is, these con artist, ratso, Ponzi scheme guys never show you bad years. They always claim their returns are just consistently good all the time. How high is too high? What, what uh, levels? of consistency and returns should set off warning bells? Well, again, it, it depends kind of on exactly what the person's saying they're doing, but they're usually going to be showing you returns that are in the 12 to 15% range with no volatility. And long-term returns in the 12 to 15% range are really pretty high anyway, considering that in the long-term, the stock market's only done about 10. So that means they're doing better than stock market returns, which, again, isn't particularly impossible because there are people that have done that. But the people that have done that have always done that with a lot of volatility, a lot of bad years, a lot of wild swings. What they're going to show you is really steady returns. If you look at all these people year after year, if they're showing you 14% one year, they're showing you 14 and three quarters percent the next and 13 and a half the year after that. And two years later, they're showing you 15 and, you know, 13 and a half again. In fact, you know, one year, uh, Alan Stanford showed exactly the same returns two years in a row. This is uh, implausible. Yeah. I mean, in, in Madoff's case, he was saying he was doing this, as I remember, by buying S&P uh, indexes and selling options. Because he, was, he was using options to do this and saying yeah. that's consistently you can make money no matter what direction the market's going. And he was showing all these statements. Uh, I, I think one of the other tip-offs was that actually the trades weren't happening and the amount of volume that would have had to have happened in those options contracts wasn't close to what the actual volume was if you looked at these things. That was well, l- let me tell you the story of Charles Ponzi. Charles Ponzi pulled in uh, more than $10 million in 1921 to engage in uh, so-called uh, arbitrage in um, international postal coupons. He pulled in $10 million to do this. There were only about 
$75,000 of total international postal coupons that existed at the time. Mm-hmm. So he pulled in this phenomenal amount of money relative to the entire universe that he claimed he traded in. The same is true of Madoff. The same is true of many of these people. That is, they engage in an oblique market that's thin and hard to understand and hard for people to see, and they claim they engage in in this activity with much more money than the activity could possibly engage in. You, You know, the fundamental feature that they're relying on is that you will never think through these nuances because they make it so complicated. Madoff called what he did split uh, split-strike conversion. And split-strike conversion is a made-up jargon term that basically meant he was um, buying puts and selling calls at the same time to collar securities. There's nothing wrong with uh, doing that, but no one's ever been able to figure out how when you collar a security with puts and calls, you get a really high return on it, because in theory that should be impossible. But the fact is, once he creates enough jargon, and this kind of uh, relates to another one of my basic signs, which is that it needs to be understandable. What the guy is telling you he does needs to be understandable. And if it's so complicated and so jargonish that you can't understand what he's talking about, there's something wrong there. The fact is, if you take a Warren Buffett or a Peter Lynch, what they do might not be easy but they can make you understand in very simple terms exactly what they do. And Ponzi scheme embezzlers always make it really complicated, really convoluted, so complex that you know that they're the genius and you're the idiot, and since you're the idiot, you're embarrassed to ask questions, so you don't. All these very intelligent people that invested with Madoff or that invested with Stanford – They fail to ask basic questions because they don't think they're supposed to be able to understand the answers anyway, so why ask the questions? Supposedly, that's what the, uh, we're going to get to that, but the financial intermediaries are for, is they are the professionals who are supposed to be asking these questions, and they got fooled just as much as everybody else in a case like this. Uh, That's a good point, Jordan, and the fact of the matter is that these people are often just in the business of making life easy for themselves. Mm-hmm. And the, the intermediaries who are paid to supposedly do analysis of these firms, the fact is they fall for the same things other people fall for. Uh, they typically fall for returns that are too good to be true. Uh, they don't rely on separating custody from decision-making. They meet the person they find he's charming, so they come to trust him, and then they don't actually realize that they need to have the good fences of the first sign to make good neighbors. The, 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 the fact is the financial intermediary world has never protected people from Ponzi schemes. Mm-hmm. Your Tremont partners that I mentioned in the book uh, lost more than half their assets because they put more than half the assets of their clients into Madoff. Yeah. And that's an amazing feature because I doubt if any of those clients understood that they were totally non-diversified. A lot of people didn't even know they were in Madoff at all. Of course. When you go into these feeder funds, you don't know where the money goes. You put the money into one fund. They then put the money into another fund. They're just making their life easy. Uh, They're collecting a fee for doing that, and they're off on an island someplace uh, drinking those little drinks with the umbrellas in them and having a good time. And, of course, they themselves are just as much uh, prone to fall for the Ponzi scheme embezzler as anybody else is because they're typically operating largely on their own. You say 13 or 14% is, is too high. What is the correct way to manage, to, to evaluate a money manager? Is it taking their returns against a benchmark over a period of time? What is the more realistic way to do it? 
Well, it, it, doing this correctly is is a complicated feature, and I describe in the book how to smell a rat uh, a, a whole lot of series of features that you want to engage in to do that. But you do want the manager to manage against a benchmark. You want clearly uh, stated goals that can be measured, and then you want to actually see how the returns uh, jive against that in an environment, as we talked about before, where the custodian is separate from the decision maker, and from that custodian, you can actually get a real set of returns. So you know the returns are real, which you can't get from somebody where you combine custody and decision making necessarily. And uh, then you want to actually understand really simply what it is they do, which again, as I mentioned earlier, pretty much all legendary investors can get you to understand simply what they do. It might not be easy to do it, but you can understand the process. And then you want to be able to kind of connect the dots to see if the returns are actually feasible doing that. Uh, That is, can you extrapolate that if you engage in this kind of activity, you might possibly get those kind of returns. When you think of of, uh, Alan Stanford, for example, Alan Stanford's claiming double-digit returns uh, where he's offering people CDs and claiming that he's investing in the kinds of securities that people normally invest in when they get CDs. If you just think about it intuitively, that's not possible. Yeah. You can't invest in CD-like instruments and get non-CD-like returns like 12%. So he had a whole army of salespeople out there selling it. Do you think they didn't look into it either? I mean, these are people who you know, got SEC licenses and they're supposedly sophisticated he not only fooled the clients, he fooled the salespeople as well. I don't think that's uh, so surprising. I think, think this through another way. Think of how many um, IPOs there have been in history and long periods where there are IPOs like the 1990s where the sales guys and gals from investment banks that are peddling them know that over the longer-term history, most IPOs don't work out very well. You know, my, my phrase uh, that I coined a couple of decades ago in, in my 1987 book, The Wall Street Walls, for uh, IPO is that it, it's probably overpriced. That's what IPO means. It's probably overpriced. Yeah. The history of IPOs overall is they don't work out very well. The salespeople know that one fact, but they keep peddling these because they just somehow believe that their investment bank in this time period is good and this is working out well. I think these people that are the salespeople, you, you know, there's an old line that there's nobody easier to sell than a salesperson. Mm-hmm, right. You, you remember that line? Right. I think that pretty much it's true that a lot of these salespeople just get sold themselves. They believe it. It's going along well. They don't understand that it's a fraud. They're not trained to analyze this stuff. Salespeople aren't trained to analyze for fraud. Yeah, indeed. Okay, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman, and again, my guest this hour is Ken Fisher, uh, whose book is called How to Smell a Rat, The Five Signs of Financial Fraud. We'll be back after this. Whether the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Network. 
Jordan Goodman has created the Money Answers Network to put at his listeners' fingertips the very best personal finance products and services that he has found in his 30 years of research. If you have a money question, Jordan Goodman has a money answer. To find out more, go to www.moneyanswers.com. The Money Answers Network features top products and services in virtually every area of personal finance, car buying, and leasing, college financing, credit debt, financial planning, investing, insurance, legal services, mortgages, retirement planning, wills, and more. Only businesses that have demonstrated excellence in both their products and services are invited to become members of the Money Answers Network. The public can sign up for membership in the Money Answers Network at no charge in order to be apprised of the latest useful resources. To learn more, visit www.moneyanswers.com. Get ahead with Money Answers. Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it'll be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. Looking for a good time? We've got a show that will give you a wild ride. This show will make you feel good. And it's not even bad for you. You need your time to let loose. It's time for a feel-good party. Pull up to the computer, mix yourself a drink, and turn up the speakers. Happy Hour is here. Every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. It's called the biggest radio show in the world. Hosted by international personality and and pundit Michael DeMarco. You don't know what's coming next. The biggest radio show in the world on Voice America. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, and my guest this hour is Ken Fisher, uh, who's the author of a new book, uh, How, to Sell, How to Smell a Rat, uh, The Five Signs of Financial Fraud. And can you tell me that the book is now on the New York Times bestseller list? Is that correct? Just made the New York Times bestseller list in the advice category and been on uh, the Wall Street Journal hardcover business bestseller list for a couple of weeks now. So it's uh, for a book that just came out at the beginning of August. It's doing really well. And I guess you're, you're at the front wave of an entire onslaught of Madoff-related books, right? Yeah. In fact, uh, currently, and this is tremendously ironic, in nonfiction in the uh, uh, Fort Lauderdale, West Palm Beach area, uh, my book is actually the number one bestseller because there's so many people down there that got nailed by Madoff. Indeed. Okay, uh, strategy number three is uh, the investing strategy is uh, very flashy and uh, there's a lot of flashy tactics. What is it that that works about that uh, when it comes to investing? Well, again, we like to believe that we're hiring an expert. So when it's complicated and convoluted and we can't understand it and make sense of it, but he can, he's the guru, we're the idiot, now we don't ask questions. One of the things that all these criminals rely on is that you won't ask serious questions, that they're going to be able to get you to invest without the serious questions. So in the book, I take you through numbers of examples of individuals who made up complete jargon terms out of no place, and they throw these jargon terms out. And once they say those jargon terms and you don't shoot them down, that's evidence that you know, that they know that you don't know that those terms are just made up jargon. And just like Bernard Madoff's uh, strike conversion, then they've got free reign to play expert, you're the idiot, 
and you're never going to ask questions about anything, and they don't want you asking questions. That's, that's central. So you really want, when you invest, to have what they do be something that's understandable, basically where you can understand it simply, and you can tell somebody else exactly how it works. Maybe you can't do it, but you can explain to them exactly how it works, because if it's ununderstandable, it's probably not real. Uh, sign number four is your advisor promotes benefits like exclusivity uh, that don't impact results. Why is it that that pulls people in? Uh, exclusivity can be really good. Like we're the only firm in our geographical region that offers this service, therefore it's exclusive. That's good because it's about the function of the basic investment service. But when they offer other things uh, to you, like this movie star is a client, this sports star, here's pictures of me with these important politicians, I own a sports team, uh, these are all things that it's, there's nothing wrong with knowing the politicians, although that's debatable. Uh, there's certainly nothing wrong with knowing the movie stars or the uh, or, uh, sports stars. Uh, there's nothing wrong with owning a, a, a a sports team, but there's nothing about that that helps you with the investment. So when they promote these things that don't have anything to do with the investment as something that somehow is good, what they're really doing is using this as a form of credibility statement because these politicians know me, and here's pictures of me with them, because these uh, celebrities all know me and associate, you can believe I'm good, therefore you can trust me, therefore you can give me the money. This is a way they build up their credibility. With many of them, not Bernard Madoff, but many of the others, including Alan Stanford and this guy Alberto Villar I mentioned a few segments back, their resumes are riddled with uh, phony nonsense that they made up to make themselves appear to be credible when they really aren't, weren't, didn't have stripes on their shoulders. And the fact is, this is just another way where they peddle exclusivity that doesn't matter uh, to get credibility. Another is big donations to charities that you believe in. Bernard Madoff gave to the Jewish community. Uh, then he embezzled from people in the Jewish community. Uh, Charles Ponzi himself was an Italian-American Catholic in Boston who gave money to charities that are Italian-American Catholic in Boston. The Italian-American Catholics in Boston loved him. They then trusted him because he believed in all the stuff they did. He's one of them. They give him the money. He embezzles from them. These people eat their own. The, uh, the final point is, and this is just a classic sign, they convince you not to ask questions. They convince you not to do due diligence, not to look into it yourself, to trust somebody else's judgment like your brother-in-law that invested with them. Of course, there's no real investment. Uh, your uh, friend, you know so-and-so in your golf uh, and country club, because they're there. You can trust that they did the work. You don't have to check into us yourselves. You know we're credible. Look at the sports stars. Look at our great returns. Uh, look at my jet. Uh, you don't have to worry about any of that stuff, so don't dig into it yourself. You want to ask questions. I'm sorry, but I'm very busy. I'm too busy to answer your questions. And then you don't go and do the due diligence yourself. In in my book, How to Smell a Rat, I go through a long process of showing people how to do the due diligence to find out if somebody is a legitimate business, basically, uh, the kinds of questions to ask, the uh, nature of asking questions that are really simple, like, uh, are you registered with the SEC? If you are, can I see uh, your registration statements? Can I see if you're a broker-dealer, your broker-dealer form, if you're an investment advisor, your ADV form? Uh, these are all things that a real legitimate firm will be transparent about and will openly give you very and, easily. And that is your sign number five that you do too much trust to a financial intermediary, which certainly happened in the case of feeder funds here. So how can you check 
on your financial intermediary if you're not a financial expert to see that they're not being taken in as well? Well, I'm just going to tell you that, that this is one of these things, like a lot of other parts in life where just showing up is half the game. You start asking all the questions that you should ask, and most of these people that are in the criminal business will not give you their time. Just asking the questions is a form of prophylactic because they won't give you their time. They don't want you asking questions. They don't have good answers for the questions. This is the reason to ask the questions. So this is reasons to ask, like, so why aren't there bad years? Uh, why do you have the small auditor? Why is uh, this? Why is that? And the more questions you ask, almost any kind of questions you ask, a legitimate firm's delighted to answer them. The illegitimate firm will shine you off and give you reasons why you shouldn't be asking them the questions. You have the, the process of, the of asking the questions of is in and of itself frauds, a prophylactic. Uh, over, over even if you can't understand a prophylactic to protection, even if you can't understand the answers yourself. Yeah. You, at the end of the book, you have a list of all the kind of major frauds in the past history. I guess as we come to a close here, the question is, has the Madoff situation been so extreme, so many people have lost so much money uh, that it's going to change the game here, that people are going to be more cautious, that there aren't going to be new Ponzi's, that the SEC is going to be more vigilant. Has this been a game changer to prevent this kind of thing from happening again? I will guarantee you that we will have not only as much of this in the past as we've had, but more. people. The reason I wrote the book is because people don't know the things to look out for to keep themselves protected from these kinds of scams. The newspaper stories about Madoff, etc., haven't really described this very well. They describe all the wrong things, like the tiny auditor, etc. And the fact of the matter is, Jordan, we're going to have more of this, not less than this, of this, because we have a world where the sense of ethics has deteriorated, and this is, in the world of criminals, the highest-paying form of criminality that you can possibly engage in, much bigger than other forms of criminality. Therefore, it will attract, if you will, the brightest of the criminal mind. And we're going to have more of this. We're not going to have less of this. I just guarantee you that. That's discouraging. <laughs> but at least it is discouraging, but it's all the more reason why people need to learn how to see the signs of a con artist coming at them so they don't actually... I don't mean an advisor who makes mistakes. I mean a criminal. Right. Terrific. Well, this has been very helpful. Again, you can find out more about this. Uh, the, Ken Fisher's new book is called How to Smell a Rat, The Five Signs of Financial Fraud. It certainly can help you avoid becoming a victim of uh, what he says. There are many more Ponzi schemes out there to be had in the future. Thanks so much for being a guest on the show, Ken. Thanks for having me, Jordan. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you again next week on The Money Answer Show. Good night. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and The Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.